Hey, if I don't know you, my name is Michael. I get the privilege of serving as the lead minister of the New Life family of churches. New Life has this vision that we want to see renewal in our time. We want to see renewal by uh, leading it, by being a part of what God is doing. We do that by planting and leading local thriving churches that we might see more people more like Jesus. We have a church, I was there this morning down in Coolangatta. Uh, we have a church in Rabin and we have a church in the heart of Brisbane City. And our heart and hope is that we'll see more churches planted in the next couple of years to come. And uh, I'm very thankful that Alex and Pastor Alex and Kath, the two my closest friends and I love when they invite me to come and preach here uh, not for any other reason than I know the kind of preaching you sit under week in week out whether it's Alex whether it's Lauren whether it's Dylan or any of the host of leaders here there are some great preaching and teaching here at New Life Brisbane so uh, if tonight is not your flavour if you find that you find it a little bit boring or wearisome or you fall asleep don't judge this church on tonight I won't be here next week Come back then and uh, Pastor Alex will be preaching and I guarantee you, you'll have a broader thesaurus of words and also a deeper heart and relationship with Jesus because of it. Now that conference, Mike Pilavachi, just quickly, because I thought Dylan did a beautiful job. Lauren had a bad voice today, so you stepped in last minute. So thanks so much, Dylan. But um, I just want to highlight, like Mike Pilavachi is a man who is, profoundly changed my life. He was from the UK, part of the John Wimber movement um, over there. And he's just someone who is just a phenomenal preacher. But there are these moments that we get him to come out and he teaches us what it means to be ready to be used by God in every single moment. Hey, if, you, if you've ever wanted means to walk with the Holy Spirit, November the 5th down at Rabina location, please be there. It, it'll be life-changing, I promise you. It'll be an intimate, uh, intimate location. It's not gonna be hundreds of thousands of people, probably about a couple hundred people will just be there with Mike as we learn to what it means to walk with the Holy Spirit. The last thing I wanna say is Alpha. Can everyone say Alpha? I always get intimidated about Alpha because I'm always like, man, how do you invite someone to Alpha? And Melinda Dwight, the head of Alpha says it like this. Just go up to someone that you know needs to know Jesus and say these words. Hey, have you ever tried Alpha? That's it. That's as simple as it needs to be. You can text it to someone right now. Because usually what they, they, don't, they don't usually say something like, don't talk to me about Alpha. They say, oh no, what's Alpha? And you're in. Because the next thing you can say is this, Alpha's a moment where we, uh, we could get together this week and we get some free food. Now that is a great moment right there. Because they're like, they're interested. And then the second thing you'd say is, hey, it's a moment where we create a safe environment to ask big questions about life. And maybe just be challenged to find the answers together. I'd love to come with you this Tuesday night. I've very rarely had anyone say, I don't like free food or hanging out with you. Right, if they say the second thing, then probably the invite to Alpha isn't the biggest concern in your relationship right now. Now, Having said that, friends, we're gonna step into a crucial conversation. And and, um, I just thought worship was so beautiful this morning, this afternoon. Um, So I would would just wanna make sure we get there again, that we're able to wait on God together as we sing. So would you join with me as we pray, as we ask God for some help today? Gracious God, we thank You. We can dwell together in this place. Whether there are mums joining us with my wife in the bub's room right now, we're in this room and we're in the first time in church, I pray that we would be still to allow Your Spirit to speak, to hear Your Spirit speak. Lord, it's so beautiful we get to sit under Your Word to be formed and shaped. I thank You that it never returns void. Turn down the distractions in our world for a moment that we might turn up the sound of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. Less of me, more of you right now, we pray in God's name. And all God's people said, Amen. I have two boys. 
one named Archer and one named Benna. They're uh, beautiful. I love being a dad. It's one of the greatest blessings of my life. It's also the reason why you might look at me and some people have already said it today. You look tired. Yes, I do. Never tell a parent they look tired. They know. You should tell them they look alive because they're here. And uh, three hours is about a bit of a sleep in for me at the moment. At night time, if I get three hours of sleep, praise the Lord. That's a, that's a good cosy sleep in. Because my son Archer is going from three to 15. He uh, is turning 15 in the next couple of years, I swear, because of how he started to treat me. And I say this because I've had to learn a new mode of discipline. When they're young and they're Benna's age, they've just started to walk. It's just transporting them to where you need them to be and entertaining them and distracting them for what they shouldn't be doing. Archer, however, has learned this talent of telling me what he thinks he should be doing in any moment. And there are these times when Archer gets these rushes of testosterone through his body. And this is something happens to a young boy. I found this out as I was a parent that he'll just be there playing with Benna. They're cuddling. They're like best friends, like playing Lego, hanging out. And suddenly this rush of testosterone will feel Archer's body and he just turns around and suddenly and like Ben is in the air and his head's heading towards the ground as Archer like pile drives him and we're like holy smokes what happened like Archer and Ben is screaming and wailing Archer just whacked him in the face I'm like what are you doing and he's like it was an accident I was just excited and I'm like, like that like I've tried that when cops pull you over speeding doesn't work it's not an excuse it was an accident I was just excited oh, keep going sir so you know Ben gets given a mom and, and Sarah my, my lovely wife she goes and hangs out with Ben for a bit. I'm like, Archer, I come with Daddy to the couch when you have a chat. Now, usually he'd be like, oh, yes, let's go hang out with Daddy. But now he knows what the chat's going to be about. And he's like, no, I don't want to. And I'm like, oh, you confused that with a request there, buddy. So, uh, hey, Archer, I need you to come to the couch with me now. I'm going to talk about being gentle. He's like, I don't want to. You're annoying me, Daddy. Leave me alone. And I'm like, oh. Praise the Lord. And so the next moment is me often picking him up, taking him to the couch with me as he protests and screams, like, let me go, I don't want you, I want mummy. That's always manipulative. They, tell, they choose the parent that's not disciplining him every time. But there's this moment where he's communicating with me, I don't wanna talk about this right now. I don't wanna have this conversation with you. And I have to communicate with him, hey, I'm not asking whether you wanna talk about this. I'm saying we need to talk about this right now. It's important. And I raise that tonight because I think it can sometimes be the same in our discipleship. That what happens sometimes is, is, is we, we kind of want God to talk about these things because they're usually pertaining to the person we're sitting next to. And we're like, hey, you'd better be listening to this because it's for you. But then there's other areas of our life we're either bored by, we, we're not really interested in, or we don't think our discipleship really needs to be focused on. And God brings them up, or our pastor brings them up, or someone in our small group brings up. We're like, hey, maybe just not right now. But the truth is that Jesus didn't run a popularity vote with what He chose to teach on. When He came to the temple and He saw them wheeling and dealing and, and, and thieving from, from the poor, He overturned tables and He taught them and He spoke to them and He was very rude, not rude, but very direct. He said, we need to have a conversation right now. He didn't take a poll from the Pharisees and be like, hey guys, what do you think we should chat about today? What are you guys feeling? We call them whitewashed tombs or talk about what religiosity does to faith and the life of the Christian. And so when we entered into this crucial conversation series, we didn't think through, okay, what do our people want to hear? What would be the most controversial topics that would get people coming back week on, week out? We, we spent time in prayer. We listed what we thought the questions were people were asking. We talked about what our society was asking. Then we just prayed and we're like, okay, God, what are you calling us to speak into in this moment? And I've got to be honest, some of the things that we, that we sense God leading us to, I'm like, I really am not interested by that at all. I don't like, really? But then we just sense the faithfulness of God say, hey, it's, it's time. People need a bit of a framework on this. We need to hear how the Scriptures speak into this. This is important. And that's what we learned tonight. 
that friends, what we're talking about right now might not be something you might be incredibly interested in, but we believe as, as a movement of churches that this stuff's important for our discipleship. So I want to take you back to the year 2005. In 2005, I remember a movie trailer. And this movie trailer came on, maybe you remember it, and the, the words flashed across the screen, if you love your children. Like, All right, well, I was in grade 11, so I didn't really have that by that point. And the next line was like, if you love your family. Now, as a teenager, so I was like, oh, they're disposable. That's okay, <laughs> moving on. Many years ago. And the next line was like, if you love anybody at all, it's like really trying to get absolutely everyone to lean in. Great marketing technique. The next line was like, this will be the scariest movie of your life. Oh, oh my gosh, this is such a wide net. What's it gonna be about? And next thing that happened is that Vice President Al Gore's face came on the screen. And he says this, the world is hotter than it has ever been. I want to tell you about an inconvenient truth. Now, I don't know if you remember that movie. An inconvenient truth where the next part of the trailer was flashes of you know, flooding and fires and earthquakes and natural disasters. As Al Gore's voice said, we need to do something about our environment. We need to do something now. I remember being really confused as a young Christian because Christians weren't really talking about this. I'm like, oh, well, Al Gore mustn't go to church because this isn't a big priority for us. Like, this mustn't be big. But then as if I've grown, it just doesn't seem to go away. Till a couple of years ago, 2017, Greta Thunberg looking at the UN in the eye and screaming at them, how dare you? This 16 year old girl calling out the world's leaders. Actually, I think she was 14 at the time. And I was so confused. Why is a 14 year old girl so passionate about this? And, and how come in all my discipleship that the church hasn't really been that concerned? The church at large, not that some churches are talking about this, but how come as a pastor, I'd never preached on it. We'd never really discussed it. And so when we got to this crucial conversation series, we started to ask the question, hey God, are you leading us into a moment where we need to actually think and talk through the environment and creation? And so today, we're gonna have a crucial conversation about creation. What it means to pursue beauty in an age of utility. What does that mean? Now, maybe you're sitting there, you're a little like me a couple of years ago. Your eyes are glazing over. You like chose the wrong week to try out new life. <laughs> oh, this isn't really for me. That's fine. Next week will be probably better for you. But I'll also challenge, that's exactly why we're having this crucial conversation. Because we don't, some of us might not think it's important. And, and I want to suggest that I think scriptures would say this is vital. This is crucial. And one of the greatest ways I think the Christian church is lacking a, a, a consistent witness is our voice on things of environmental justice. And, and I, I want to kind of raise four things today. I want to start with objections. Why do we object to talking about the environment in the church? Maybe you don't, but I just want to suggest why Christians by and large might. Then we want to answer three questions. Does God care about creation? Should we care about creation? And how should we care about creation? Is that okay? Yeah. Fantastic. Well, let's lean in. What, what are the objections that, to be honest, when I was growing up, I really felt fed my naivety, my, ignorant, my, my ignorance of the environment and of nature? And the first one was simply this, politics. When people talk about climate change and the environment, I just think, oh, we're in a new political cycle. Someone's wanting to get elected right now and we're just driving stuff that's popular and you know, it was a little bit hotter last summer, so someone's trying to blame someone for that. 
But what ends up happening is that we create a really unhelpful dichotomy. We think that people who care about the environment and nature are clearly those who vote for the Greens and for the Labour Party, and mainly for the Greens and the Labour Party, but, but you know, for the Greens, we're like, well, they're the people who care about the environment. But if you don't care about the environment, we then can sometimes swing over the other side. We're like, well, this is the crew that hang out over here with the Liberal Party. And these are the Liberal Party voters. And we really have two ways of viewing how we should approach the environment. And the problem with that is, is it creates an unhelpful dichotomy that says caring for creation is actually a political issue. And I, I, my hope today is not that you would leave here to vote for a party. In fact, I pray that you would leave here thinking about whichever party you vote for going, how can I help my party be active in this? The party I do vote for, how can I be a voice? How can I show that this is important to me? Why? Because this isn't a political issue. I think it's a discipleship issue. The second thing is awareness, is that sometimes we, we, we don't think about these things because we're, we're kind of insulated from it. More so where I live on the Gold Coast, but maybe a little bit less so in Brisbane. But we have a very good lifestyle in these cities. Now we do see people driving around in four-wheel drives that have never been four-wheel driving in their life and we ask ourselves questions about how come you drive that in the heart of Brisbane City and, and some of those people do go four-wheel driving, some of them don't. But, but that's probably not the issue here. The issue I think is a little bit deeper than what car we drive as to what effect does the way we consume things cause. And the reason I say that is because we can be removed from things that are close to God's heart. Like in Madagascar right now, which is a tropical paradise, or at least used to be, 85% of their foresters have gone as they've cut them down to provide rice for the world's overconsumption of goods. Their nation being on the brink of starvation and poverty is struggling, but they need to produce. And we don't think about that. But the question we have to ask is, does God care? And the third thing maybe is because we have this really difficult theology that in Christians, maybe we're new to Christianity today and it's gonna seem really bizarre to you, but we can have this theology that says, well, it's all gonna burn down anyway. Jesus is gonna come back riding on a white horse with tattoo on his thigh. And he's just gonna you know, take us home and sit on a cloud and we'll play a harp for the rest of eternity. So, hey, you know, do we really need to worry or can I just pick up a sledgehammer and help out? And, and, and that's actually really bad biblical literacy to think that the trajectory of the Christian lifestyle is that everything around us will one day burn, so why do we care? And I don't think that's faithful to Scripture. Maybe you're not in any of those camps today. And, and maybe you're someone who's actually genuinely wanting to lean in, but I, I, I'd encourage you that if any of those objections resonate for you, and, and they were not mine own created, did a bunch of research and commentators and, and theologians are kind of suggesting these are the main concerns for Christians, I think the Scriptures help us navigate these. And so I wanna step into the first question tonight, does God care about the environment? Does God care? Because surely the heart of those who are followers of Jesus is our heart wants to break for that which breaks the heart of God. And I think the answer to this, to, you know, to show my hand before we finish, is I think, yes, God does really care about the environment. But before we get there, we need to ask, why would God care about the environment? And there's actually a more initial question is, well, whose is the environment? To whom does creation belong? To whom does your house, the land that you're upon, the land that this church is upon, whom does, who lays claims to all that is? And Psalm 24 verse one actually gives us a really good framework for understanding this. It says this, this great principle, which is gonna help us navigate, not just this week, but next week on stewardship and later on when we talk about reconciliation, it says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Now this is a really controversial claim that Christianity makes about all things. 
that when we come to follow Jesus, we no longer come and be a part of His story as people who lay claim to personal belongings, that this part is God's and this part is mine. As Christians, we have this revolutionary understanding that God created all things and still lays claims to all things as being His. So how, how do we wrestle with that? And where does that come from? Well, come with me for a moment. We're gonna walk through some scenes of the Bible. We're not gonna walk through all the theology of the environment from the Bible. It's just some helpful things that might give us an indication. And this for me would start uh, in the beginning. Now in, uh, in Christianity, there's this great, beautiful thing that I love about our faith that it gives us a reason and a purpose, the reason why all things are here. From the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why? Because He had intention and purpose. A guy named Walter Brueggemann sums it up like this, that the Christian ethic of creation is that the Creator has a purpose and a will for creation. The creation exists only because of that will. And this is a great summation of what Christianity believes. You might be a, a, a Christian evolutionist. You might be an old earth Christian. You might believe in young earth creationism. You might believe in seven days creationism. Wherever you are, all Christians who are Bible following, Scripture believing Christians would lay claim that the earth was created on purpose. It was created on purpose. And so what was the reason why we were placed here? And in Genesis chapter one, we read this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them and male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. It's a really important principle that God gives us here through His Word. He gives us the intention around why Christian was created. If you've heard Pastor Alex preach on any part of Genesis, you'll hear him talk about this all the time, that there is a vocation given to humanity that we are called to rule and to reign, which means that we need to start a really helpful hierarchy of creation. God created flora and fauna and all things. But then He also created humanity. Now that's an important step I took there. God did not create humanity equal with creation. He did not say flora and fauna and humanity are on the same level of value to Him. No, 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 there is a beautiful possession and there is a prize. There is a beautiful design to humanity. But He's created humanity to be over creation. Now, when we say the word over in our day and age, we hear oppression and we hear abuse. But the word rule and reign in Hebrew actually is more akin to steward and custodian which means that God created humanity to be over creation, that humanity would bless creation, not abuse creation. And this is a really important point, that we have not been created equal with animals, but created above the animal that we might bless those that God has given us stewardship over. A lady named Sandra Richter says it like this in a great book called Stewarding Eden that I read um, and I encourage you to read Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name for God, is indeed the ultimate sovereign, she writes. But humanity has been created as His representative to serve as custodian and steward, enacting the Creator's will by living our lives as a reflection of God's image. We have received our authority from the Creator. We rule as He would. We are stewards, not kings. And this is so crucial for us to understand that yes, it is not wrong for us to use nature for what we need, but it is sinful, Scripture would suggest, to use nature for our greed. See, it's helpful when you buy an investment property, you, you, you put a renter in it. And the idea is that you have rented out your home to someone, but it is your possession. And what is the hope for those who rent that room? That they would maintain it, that they would not destroy it, but return it 
in much the same condition as which they received it. And this is such a helpful way of understanding the way Christ plays, the way God places humanity in His creation. It was not to own, but to caretake, that we would bless and use as needed, but also glorify Him by how we nourished and cultivated the earth. When we talk about creation environment, the reason why I think the Christian worldview is so helpful is because it actually gives us an explanation as to where things went wrong. Because you can't talk about in the Christian framework where creation is if you don't, if you don't talk about what happened that's wrong. Sometimes we talk about natural disasters in the wrong frames, that why would God do this? And when I look at what's happening in New South Wales and Victoria, I do not think God is acting just and right, righteous wrath against those states. I think God grieves with us as He looks at what's happening down there. Because in Genesis chapter three, we see how humanity interacted with their role to be custodians and stewards. That when God said, do not eat of the fruit of this tree, trust me, care, take and take whatever you need from everything else, but just trust me not to consume this. And humanity, when they found out that if they ate of the fruit of that tree, they would become equal with God, not ruling in His place, but ruling instead of Him altogether, that they chose to eat of the fruit of the tree to exalt themselves out of greed and selfishness and gluttony. And so in Genesis chapter three, we see the framework of creation broken by selfishness and greed. And because of that, creation itself has been deeply fractured. So when we look at the natural disasters in our world, I, I fully and firmly believe this was not the way that God intended creation to be. We should grieve and we should lament because if, you own a house, if you're renting someone's house and you knock down a wall and then the roof caves in, you don't blame the constructor. You should turn around and be like, man, we have not treated this the way it was designed to be used. And this is so pivotal for us. We join God in grieving. We join creation in grieving. That the way it is, is not the way it was created to be. But God didn't give up because humanity had given in. God pressed down and chose to redeem His, his image, His rulers and His reigners. He said, come and, and may you know me. May you know how I've created and purposed you. And so when He called His people out of Egypt into the promised land, whilst they were in the desert wandering the wilderness, He gave them boundaries again that they might fulfil their Edenic covenant, that they might, they might step in again and become cultivators and stewards of His world. So we read through the Pentateuch. In fact, when we go to Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 1, to two of principles of God's intention and a hope of the harmony of humanity and the environment. We read this, when you have entered, God writes to Israelite people, the land that Yahweh, your God is giving you as an inheritance and you possess it and live in it, you shall take from the first of all the produce of the ground that you shall bring in from the land that Yahweh, your God is giving you and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where Yahweh, your God chooses to place His name. There's so much to unpack here. But what we're talking about here is the tithe of the first fruits in the Israelite nation. God says you're gonna have an abundance and plenty of agriculture and livestock in this land. But when you reap that abundance, the first thing you do is not consume, the first thing you do is sacrifice and worship. And the reason why is this, God is building into the worship habits of the Israelite people, the, the recognition and understanding, this is not yours. Most commentators and theologians have a great way of saying this. It's quite crass and rude, but helps us understand it. They say, this is humanity paying rent acknowledging this is not ours. We are living here on behalf of somebody and we acknowledge and worship it. And this is why friends, we still celebrate this today. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> the environment loves you, buddy. 
there's this moment, right, where we talk about money in the church. And can I be honest, God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our belongings. But the reason why in my household, my wife, the first thing we do is we give to the local church with our finances. is not because the local church needs it. God doesn't. It's actually a habit for us to go, God, this was always yours. Hey God, we surrendered to you first and foremost because we are your stewards here. Thank you for your abundance and your blessing. And if we don't, guess what? God still loves us. God still calls us. God still calls us His children. But we're talking about our formation. Why? Because God's saying, have the right view of what you're consuming. It is not yours, but you get to be blessed by it. And so he moves on. In fact, we go a bit earlier into the book of Exodus and we see a different rhythm. Book of Exodus 23, verse 10 to 12. That's not 1,012, that verse doesn't exist. You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. But the seventh, you shall let it rest and lie fallow so that the needy of your people may eat and whatever they leave, the wild animal may eat. You ought to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh you shall rest in order that your ox and your donkey may rest. And the son of your feet... said that, you know, that word at the Gold Coast is a lot more, you know, retired there and they're like, <gasps> and I'm like, I'm sorry, mom. And the son of your female servant, the immigrant may be refreshed. Hear what's happening here. What God has done here is He's given them a rhythm that says, okay, once every seven years, you're going to let the land lie fallow. You're going to let it lie in rest. And look who benefits when they follow His agricultural principle. When they choose to not squeeze the land of everything it could give them, who gets, who benefits? The poor and the animals. God says this, He's like, don't try to take everything you can. Leave some for those who can't and so the land might be refreshed. In fact, in America right now, a lot of farmers are practicing this agricultural principle of the seventh year, leaving the land fallow and they're finding that it reaps a higher abundance because they let it rest. Now in this day and age when we've got more farms producing more than we've ever known where we're pushing animals and ground to produce unnatural quantities of food, we should ask, what is this doing to the environment that we are called to steward and create? Are we blessing it? I had a farmer come up to me last week at Rabina, just crying. His dad had died the week before, but they were farming together and they had chosen to fulfil this principle that was given to the Israelites. And then he said, this works. It works. And I'm so thankful that you've spoken about it because it validates the way we've chosen to live our lives as farmers, to worship God with how we do this. But friends, the Sabbath rest is actually a way we engage with creation. It's not just the way farmers reap the harvest. It's the way humanity acknowledges we are blessed to use this. It is not a right. Sandy Richter goes on to say this like this. In some, the constitution of ancient Israel taught that economic security or growth was not a viable excuse for the abuse of the land and that true economic well-being would come only from careful stewardship of it. The economic security or growth was not a viable excuse for the abuse of the land. Friends, what we've just done is something called the study of protology. Can everyone say protology? Protology is the study of first things where we kind of need to know where things came from to know where they're going, to know how we should handle them. But you might be seeing me like, well, Michael, this is the Old Testament stuff. This is the Old Covenant. I'm covered by the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. If you're a non-Christian, you're probably freaked out by everything that I just said right now. Who's covering me with what? And there's this moment, right, where we can kind of excuse, well, I've asked Christ for forgiveness, but the world is the way it is. So we've just resigned to that now and we'll just wait for the new heavens and the new earth. And, and then the reason is not necessarily we have an issue with how God created things. The issue there is that we've actually got a concern with where things are headed. This is called eschatology. This is the study of last things. 
And for us to know how to handle current things, we need to know how first things were created, where things are headed, so we might know how we can act now. Because I believe that the Old Testament's the only part of the Bible that speaks into creation and the environment. That actually the New Testament is firm and emphatic of this. So I wanna move now, not only does God care, which I think we would say emphatically, yes, He does seem to care for His creation, but should we care? Should we care? Pastor in America was quoted this in a sermon. He says on the next slide, what is the left at the end of all things? Did Jesus die for plants? No. Did Jesus die for animals? No. Jesus died for people. And when it is all said and done, the only thing that will be left is the church. Now there's so much beauty in this and there's also so much wrong. I believe that Christ did die for humanity, that that is His prized possession. He came to redeem you, friends. He loves you, He cherishes you. But that is such a limited view of what He came to do. It's almost like we've limited God's power. That's why on the cross, does not Jesus say, look, I am making all things new, all things. And we get this kind of view sometimes bubbling up in Christianity that one day on the end of all things, Christ will come back and He will annihilate what has been to maybe either whisk us away to this pearly gated heaven or maybe to institute something new here. And that's actually got pretty good scriptural reasons for why people believe that. You might read that in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 10 to 13, or 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2 to 3, or Revelations chapter 6, or pretty much the whole book of Revelation. Don't read it late at night if you want to sleep. There's this like, there's this, these, these things in Scripture that actually do point to this. So I want to highlight, the Bible does say things like, one day on the day of the Lord, He will come back and burn, annihilate, destroy. But what's important is that we understand the day of the Lord referenced in each of these Scriptures and elsewhere in the Bible was not always actually about annihilation. All throughout the Old Testament, the the writers would talk about the day of the Lord and the Israelites would hold it as a future hope, this clinging to what God will one day do. And that it wasn't about annihilation as much as it was about judgment. That one day God will come and judge all things based on what they were created for and how they've been redeemed and resurrected or, or renewed by the power of Jesus Christ. It wasn't necessarily about annihilation. And the reason why I think where this is challenged and how we've got to be careful with how we view where this is all heading is actually a really beautiful verse in Romans chapter eight. Now, I know we've done a lot of Scripture today. Some of you are like, holy smokes, I've had enough Scripture for the month. No, you haven't. Here we go. Romans chapter eight, verse 18 to 20. Paul writes this to the Roman church. For I consider this, he says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, then just if you've tuned out, tune in just now, lean into these beautiful verses written by Paul. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, is subjected to sin, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be set free from it, its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Friends, the Scriptures are not silent on natural disasters. We could call this groaning. We could call this a lamenting of creation as to how it has been treated. But then creation seems to be longing for something. The revealing of the sons and the daughters of God. Why would creation be longing for the followers of God to be revealed if only we just lit a torch and lit lit the bonfire in front of us and watched it burn? Why would it long for those to be revealed that would eagerly seek its destruction? The idea, friends, is that the environment should not be a left political issue. It should be close to those who are pursuing the kingdom of God. 
because creation is longing for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Why? Because what does it mean for you to be a son and daughter of God? Maybe you're a new Christian, not a Christian yet here today. This is what it means. When you come to know Jesus, He doesn't just come and make your life a little bit better by a little bit of recycling. No, He comes and He resurrects something that is dead and gives it new life and renews and transforms and breathes hope into it. And creation looks at the Christian soul and says, one day that will be our story. The God who resurrects dead humans into life will one day resurrect all things into its original purpose. And that's why we live these resurrected lives of glory and hope that we testify to creation. God is not finished yet and we are partnering with Him as we redeem and renew this world. The way we enact with the environment actually should preach the Gospel, should preach a better story. This isn't about how you vote, but it's about how we live. For those of you thinking, wow, it's gone off the deep end. New life's gone left. This is, this is an interesting day for us. Well, let me tell you, you're a conservative. And which is okay, if that's where you sit, can I just say, if that's where you politically sit, I'm not trying to be like, oh, that's a bad thing. I just recognise we have this language of like, well, this is conservative, this is political. And there's this beautiful third way called the kingdom that challenges the left and the right and calls us to the way of Jesus. Douglas Moo says it like this, who is a very conservative theologian. He goes and he, and he talks about, if creation has suffered the consequences of human sin, it will also enjoy the fruits of human deliverance. When believers are glorified, creation's bondage to decay will be ended and it will participate in the freedom that belongs to the glory for which Christians are destined. Nature, Paul affirms, has a future within the plan of God. It is not destined for destruction, but for transformation. A guy named Nathan Rittenhouse who was interviewed on Dan Patterson's question Christianity that my man James works for. He says this, Christians should care about the environment. This is our Father's world and we are put here to be His stewards. To finish this thought about should we care, a guy who worked for Jimmy Carter and his environmental council said this, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity, loss, ecosystem collapse and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. And to that, I would say, amen. Science, science can't transform the human heart. It can just tell us how it functions. Only one person could do that. His name is Jesus. And so what the environment needs is people who are willing for their lives to be transformed by Christ, that it would be blessed as the sons and daughters of God are revealed. Before I finish with how we should care, let me just surmise. First of all, the earth is God's and everything in it. He has entrusted it to us for our cultivation and stewardship. Sinful greed is destroying it through two things that we don't talk about much, through greed, but also gluttony. We don't talk about gluttony much in the church. Maybe we should. That the gospel should not just transform us, number four, but lead us to be transformed in how we live God's work, in God's world, caretaking His creation. And finally, we should want to caretake for the environment. You know why? Because my sons are up in the bub's room right now. And one day they will inherit what we leave behind. And I want them to inherit a world that is thick with gospel renewal, not crying for breath because of humanity and Christianity's greed. What if Jesus is the day of the Lord is still hundreds and thousands of years to come? May we bless future generations by how we let them inherit the earth that we caretake today. So how should we care? How should we care? You know, when I think about how God must feel at this moment, when I was reading this and I was, I was quite honestly, I was excited to preach it, but I was like, I don't know God if I can make this interesting. Just God, God challenged me a lot on uh, the hypocrisy in my life, in my environmental consumption. 
And I, and I was just reminded of this image. And I want to ask you this question. How might God be feeling right now about things like the Pacific Ocean garbage dump? This is His house. This was His creation. I've joked too often about single-use plastics. And I realise it's probably a little bit more serious than I thought. Then when we look at this next image of the Madagascan forest, it actually asks us to question what would lead a people to obliterate their natural habitat just so they could earn a living beyond what is reasonable. And maybe that's still, you know, garbage patch that's in the middle of the ocean. This is over in Africa. So let's talk about something a little closer to home, food wastage. Each year, Australia costs the economy $36.6 billion a year on wasted food. 36.6. This means that we spend 2,600 gigalitres of water growing things we will never eat. That is five times Sydney Harbour water usage on food wastage. To grow that amount of food is larger than the state of Victoria. That's food that never crosses our lips or maybe is on our plates, but fast to our bins. And I found out this week that, um, actually a couple of weeks ago, that the world is creating 1.5 times the amount of food we all need to eat. So starvation is not an issue of supply, but greed. Human poverty is not an issue of having enough, is an issue of do those who need it receive it. And there's just some easy stuff that we could do with that. Can we change starvation all around the world? Not as individuals, no. But could we live in a way where the way we live our life screams to those who are starving right now, we hear you and we live as justly as we can. I was confronted by this, I was at a party yesterday and just even as I was throwing away the scraps, I was like, ah, what could we do here? I snuck a whole bunch into a dude's esky so he'll be surprised when he gets home. But it was just like this sense of like, maybe we just don't waste food. And just starting to think through how we could do this stuff a bit better. That we might ask, how is the cultivation going? How is this raining? How is this being stewards? If God was to come back to His house that we're renting, would, he, would we get our bond back? Yeah, it's like our generation understands that, right? We're like, damn it, they're probably not. You're not going to get bond back either way, right? There's no thing. Anyway. <laughs> I believe this, God longs to resurrect. God longs to renew. God longs to restore. But you know what broke my heart? I was talking to an environmental scientist who's a Christian this week. He said, Michael, you know what confuses my friends the most about Christianity is why people don't care about creation. How come is it that the environmental stuff is actually led by those who are never in church? You don't follow Jesus. So let me finish here. How should we care? How should we care? The truth is, friends, is that the environment's not doing great. I was chatting with an elder at Brisbane and a good friend, Josh Phillips, about this. He and his wife do a bunch of stuff of environmental consultancy around the world. And, and the environment's not great, but the answers aren't simple. It's not as simple as shutting down every coal mine. In America, uh, the, the left-wing lobby shut down a coal mine of an Indigenous Native community and the Indigenous Native community were subjected to poverty and starvation because they'd lost their economic income. It's not as simple as just what the alarmist politics tells us are the next steps of both the left and the right. It's, it's complex. 
And we've got to be willing to navigate the complexity of it all and go, okay, this isn't about easy solutions and protests. This is about how do we live day in, day out in ways that environmentally preach the gospel. Sandy Richter says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Therefore, we use creation for what we need not to fulfil our greed. If you do anything, if you read that book, Stewards of Eden, you will be blessed. It's so short and so simple, but so beautiful. And so I wanna finish with three suggestions that this guy, Nathan Rittenhouse says, and I think they're really helpful. The first one is this, what would it look like if we were to live with radical gratitude? Radical gratitude. Not just saying thank you when someone gave you something, but thank you for all that we have. Is it wrong to own a four-wheel drive? I don't think so. But I think it's wrong to not be thankful for it. I think it's wrong for us to look at someone else's car and wish for something else other than what we currently drive when it currently meets our needs. And actually, another car might consume differently than the one we drive. Is it wrong for us to buy more clothes? No, I don't think it is. We need to wear clothes. A lot of you, your professional standards are requiring that. But it is right for us to actually go, where were these made? You know, if I'm honest, friends, most of the clothes I wear right now, um, they were probably made in, in a slave factory somewhere and that should grieve us. That looking good and being just can't always be the same thing. And, and, I, and it's challenged me. You know, I try and research when I can. But there are some things that we can be paralysed by, like the fact that phones are generally made um, but with products that are built in, in slavery. And, and that's hard for us to navigate. But where we can, we can live as justly as we can. And we can grieve and lament and petition for the other parts in our world to change. What does it mean for us to consume less and be thankful for more? Second thing is we should Sabbath well. Like we should Sabbath well. For those of you who don't know what a Sabbath is, it's like this part of being a Christian is awesome where God's like, you've got to take a break. I don't know why people think that's a bad idea. It's like people are like, oh, God's all about religiosity and rules. He's about us flourishing. He's like, just take a break. It's like, awesome. But Sabbathing isn't just about taking a break. Sabbathing is about taking a step back from consumption. See, the Jews would actually make sure they did all their consuming, all their purchasing the day before. And on Sabbath, creation would celebrate because it would rest. This is why it was a six day working week on farms back before the industrial revolution is because it was one day a week that was everything rests. And we've forgotten that. It's not just about stepping away from emails. It's also about stepping away from consuming. What would it look like this week if you stepped into cultivation and enjoying creation, not just consuming it? To enjoy your family and say, hey, let's not turn stuff on. Let's just turn stuff off and dwell in the goodness of God. Let's Sabbath well together, right? And finally, it would just be simply this, vote with your dollars. Money speaks so much more than voting in the political system. Where we spend actually matters and reinforces what we want. And so let's spend our money well. Whether you buy your jeans from Outland Denim, who are you know, bringing people out of child slavery, out of sex slavery and teaching them skills to, to, to make their own clothes. This is, I'm not paid to say that. I don't know those guys. But, or whether you're buying from the local farmer's market because it's sustainable food and you're trying to think, hey, we've got to get from Woolies and Coles every now and again, but if I can do something local, I will. This stuff matters. And don't think it doesn't matter because here's where it actually matters. It matters for your soul not just for the world, because we're becoming someone at all stages. It's part of who new life is. We are always becoming, always. We're always being formed. I'm grieved at times when I can think of the last week when I've thrown stuff away that I could have put in a recycling bin, when I've eaten too much, when I've, when I've not just not done, but 
there are such beautiful moments. Last night at this party, I got to see a whale breach on the ocean. And I was like, man, I'm so thankful that I get to watch this. How can I show my thankfulness? I'm gonna take care of it. Because you know what? Before Jesus cares about the environment around us, He cares about something else far more important. He cares about the environment of your heart. I hope today, don't go home feeling guilty. That's not the aim. Because you know what? Behaviour modification doesn't work. It's tiring. It gets hard. Christianity, Dallas Willard said, isn't about behaviour modification, it's about spiritual transformation. Friends, the problem of the environment is not how you recycle, it's how we've dealt with our greed, our lust, our apathy and our gluttony. And so I just wanna suggest this, and I realise I'm a bit over, so I'll wrap this up here. We need to see Jesus rightly again and His role in our lives. I don't think it was an accident that in John chapter 20, when Mary first saw Christ after the resurrection, do you wanna know how she mistook Him? She didn't go, oh, it's a rabbi. Oh, it's a resurrected Jesus. She go, oh, it's a fisherman. John chapter 20 tells us she mistook Him for a gardener. And was like, oh, silly Mary. I wonder if it's because He wanted her to. Because here's the second Adam doing what the first Adam couldn't, defeating sin and restoring life. Maybe Jesus wants us to know He's the gardener, not just of this world, but of our souls. He's the best weeder you know. He can resurrect your garden back to life. He can backyard blitz that thing until it's beautiful again. There's some of you here today that you're consumed by greed. You're consumed by selfishness, by apathy, by laziness. And I just wanna say the first option here is not to try harder, is to surrender your life to Jesus. That's how we become what the world longs to see. Second thing is for Christians today, I'm gonna invite you in a moment to repent with me. And may we constantly repent. That when we see floods, when we see earthquakes, may we just repent. Say, hey God, we're sorry if we've abused your world. How can we be a good answer for it? Help us to have good conversations. And would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? So I just wanna ask real quickly today, are you consumed by greed? Are you consumed by lust? Are you consumed by gluttony and by the desire to have more? And you're just like, man, God, I can't. I just, I sense it's gripping me. And I wanna let you know there's a better way. There's a better Saviour. There's a better gardener. His name is Jesus. And He comes and says, repent and turn and I will nourish and restore. So maybe today you need a transformed heart before you transform your recycling habits. So I just wanna say this. If you want Jesus to come in and renovate, if you wanna repent and turn to Him as your Lord and Saviour right now, Christians around this room are praying for you. I would just ask, just, just in this moment, with every head bowed and eyes closed, would you just raise your hand so I can see you? If you want Jesus to step into your world, forgive you of your selfishness and renovate your heart, would you just raise your hand? I'll wait for you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I see those hands. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Mm. Some of you have raised your hand for the hundredth time. I just want to say thank you. Some of you, that was the first time. I just want to say, wow, thank you. I want to pray for you now, but I want to pray with you. We're just all going to say a prayer. and It's not a magical prayer. It's a prayer that just starts giving us language to talk to God. So everyone in the room is going to say this after me nice and loud. Would you repeat these words? Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Renovate my heart. Wash me clean. 
I choose to follow you as my Lord, my Savior, and my friend. Renew me that I might renew your world. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I thank you for those who have just confessed and turned to you. You are good and you are God. and You are their Savior and you are my Savior. Father, I pray for what you've started in people today, continue it unto completion. For your glory and the good of this world, that creation would long to see those who raise their hands today. In Jesus' Name. Across this room, would you stand to your feet? And if you're willing to join me in a moment of repentance, I just wonder if you'd hold out your hands in front of you. And so God, we come before you now as disciples. Lord, we haven't always got this right. And Lord, the Green Party, the Labour Party, the Liberal Party, they have some answers, but not all. But God, You know, You created this. So God, we're sorry for where we've gotten it wrong. Teach us what it means to use Your creation for our need, not for our greed. That the world would be blessed because we are followers of You. May the way we consume and interact with Your environment preach and live out the Gospel in the Name of Jesus Christ. We pray these things. Friends, would you join with us as we respond to